Hello, listeners, and welcome to part two of episode 20 of Film is Lit. I'm Laura, the lit expert. And I'm Danny, the film expert. Wait a second. Is it episode 21 or episode 20? Because technically we're releasing another episode. It's 20.5. Like... Can we... Okay, well... Can we go he... up by half Here's points? the thing. I don't want to be a hypocrite because Quentin Tarantino considers... Kill, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, uh, one movie. But here's the thing. If you go on Amazon to buy the movies, you need to pay for two <laughs> movies, okay? And when people went to see it in the theater, they had to buy two tickets. So the people had to wait a week for another episode. Oh, I don't oh, know. I didn't think about that. That's complicated. Yeah. I didn't want to complicate our podcast. And it's already complicated because it's not like we're doing, you know, a year of season one and then a year of season two. We're only doing 10 episodes a pop because, you know, we need breaks between them and... But this episode is the 11th episode of the second season, but the 21st episode overall. Oh, no. Oh, geez. Well, (laughs) I, I don't know. This is... This originally wasn't going to be a a two-parter episode, but we recorded so much (laughs) material for the first half that we decided to take a break. So you're getting an extra episode for this season. Be happy. Don't be upset at how complicated it is. Be happy that you get extra content. mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't owe you anything. In fact, you owe us something. Yeah, we're we're... not getting paid for this. Yeah. We're we're taking time out of our very busy schedules <laughs> to do this podcast. In the middle of a hashtag climate crisis in Southern California with fires, degrees over 110 Fahrenheit, I mean, we should be getting paid. People should be sending me wine hey, for their entertainment. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your favorite kind? Pinot? Gr- gris? Pinot Gris? I, that you don't have to check. I know that that's your favorite. Well, Laura's going to check um, the wine. Oh, here she comes. Prayers of Saints, Pinot Grigio. Okay, so uh, Laura, <laughs> what's your some. or at least cash to buy some? What's your Venmo? <laughs> I don't even know. It's probably Laura Sealing. Laura <laughs> underscore Sealing. <laughs> Mine's Daniel hyphen Gaylord. So. <laughs> Yeah, we need your just, money. Just kidding. Don't send us money. I mean, if you That'd want to, no, we no, definitely no, no. deserve it. We're not asking for anything. You're not. I am. <laughs> and I think we're justified. Okay. What are we tackling on today's episode? Well, we spent the first part... <laughs> fawning over Stephen King's writing. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King's 11-22-63. On today's episode, we're finally reviewing a television series... On this podcast, we are reviewing the adaptation of the same name, 11-22-63, a limited series released in 2016 on Hulu. Right, which neither of us had watched until we had both read the book Mm -hmm. only a couple weeks ago. But let me tell you, it was a drag of a couple weeks. (laughs) It it was tough. At first, I was on board. And I think, yeah, the first two episodes of this eight-part series are okay. Okay, I mean, they're engaging enough. I disagree, but continue. But then once episode three rolls around, it's kind of like, oh, 
there's a huge change that happens at the end of episode two where a yeah. character is added that is only in the book for I'm already getting so angry for a, a small for a scene and the show from there branches off and it's a big enough change where it's oh it, it kind of resembles the, the watershed moment we were talking about where one little thing right. branches off into so much more I was just gonna say it almost becomes a new string Ex- right ooh, ooh. Maybe that was what they were going for, exploring a different string. Just kidding. The show is too stupid to even think about that. The show, and it might sound like we're being a little harsh, but I came around to Laura's opinion. Stupid is is a great term, and I know that's kind of that sounds like we're in fifth grade on the on the playground calling someone names, but the show really is stupid. I mean, the main character is stupid. Of Jake Epping. There's no rationale behind his thoughts. The show. And where in the book, the whole kind of point was that Jake was a smart guy. It's right. smarter than you, the reader, where you're mm-hmm. reading him and you're kind of in awe of him, mm-hmm. but our boy James Franco, <laughs> it's he's not not the best uh, in this show, and and it depends on the project with Franco, honestly, because in the movie The Interview, I actually love that movie, the one with where they with Seth Rogen, where mm-hmm. they go over to North Korea and sure, yeah, no, I, I've seen that. I, I disagree. Also, I, I was a little concerned as soon as I heard that he was playing the main character in this show because I personally don't like him. Or his acting style, I think that I haven't seen anything I like him in because I kind of just watch him be too cool for the project. Every time I see him in something, okay, maybe that's not totally true. Freaks and Geeks is really good. But he's intentionally playing the character that's too cool for school. And he's believable in that. But in everything else I've seen him in, I just kind of feel like I'm not buying that he cares about what he's doing. It immediately sort of made me nervous that because Jake is such a genuine character... Mm-hmm. that he might not be able to pull this off. But I was very willing to give him a chance, especially because Danny actually found this listicle of the top Stephen King adaptations to television, specifically, mm-hmm. not just movies. And this landed at number one. Yeah, on Collider.com, which is mm-hmm. one of my go-to sites for movie news and right. movie reviews. We but... call that Danny's soaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Checking his soaps. Right. But... Not only was this at number one on this listicle, I also knew going in that Stephen King had been a producer. Mm -hmm. And so I was excited that because Stephen King is very particular about how his content is adapted to the screen, that he would be very involved and maybe very happy with the way that it turned out. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what went wrong with it. This piece, but there's so much wrong with it. I'm well, gonna try to be objective, but no, like it, I mentioned, I mean, it, it's hard to be objective yeah. with books you love. Yeah, I, I think that's it's understandable. Really I, we're not professional critics here. We're not giving a review from a newspaper where we can be as emotional and subjective as we want. But as we mentioned <laughs> in the last episode, it's just the showrunners and writers show a fundamental misunderstanding of Stephen King's text, right. which. <laughs> Again, as we mentioned, it's weird that Stephen King was a producer. He must not have yeah. been a writer on the show. I'm, he's not credited on IMDb as being a writer. Mm-hmm. It's based on his book, obviously, but co-producer is the only credit he has. I can't imagine what hand he had in this. And how he would have approved at all. I mean, yeah, it, it's bizarre, but... 
there are more bad Stephen King adaptations than good. This is certainly a bad one. Not It's no fault to the original text. No. If you didn't listen to our previous episode, here's the thing. Don't listen to this episode. Go and read the book 112263. <laughs> Again, we cannot stress it right. enough. It is our favorite book. Right. And then listen to the previous episode before this episode because a lot of that it requires context. But Yeah, here's what I'll say about the show versus the book kind of distilled down to its purest form distilled down to a log line so the show is about the assassination of jfk and Mm -hmm. attempting to stop it Mm -hmm. the book is about jake epping Mm -hmm. now do you see they're very of course jake epping is involved in the plan to stop the assassination of jfk Mm -hmm. but Notice how I just said the book is about Jake Epping. Mm -hmm. It's all about him. Yeah. Whereas the show is very centered on just this constant plot of JFK. And part of the magic of the book, he gets lost and absorbed in the town of Jody. And and half forgets his mission. Mm -hmm. And there is kind of a lull, but... That doesn't mean it's boring. It's just that's kind of the natural progression of the story. Yeah. But... And he's such a well-written character that you can lose yourself in that. Right. And that in itself is entertaining. But making it an eight-episode... Yeah show where even though it was released on Hulu, it was released weekly, you know, kind of like how HBO does it. So it still had that kind of episodic cable television feel to it since it wasn't all dumped at the same time. Right. And keep in mind, 2016, not that long ago, but dumping full limited series or shows at one time Mm -hmm. wasn't as common as it is now. I think it all started with House of Cards in 2013, 2014, when they Mm -hmm. were starting to release their first couple seasons. They were kind of Netflix's flagship show. I still haven't seen that. Yeah, where they started the practice of, of just dumping the whole show at one time. But by making it eight episodes, which the book is too long to be adapted into a movie. Of course. But there is not enough there to make it an eight episode show. By making that many episodes, there's you just need to add stuff and nothing infuriates yeah. fans of a book more than adding unnecessary stuff to pad out the running time. Right. If it's meaningful, understood. If it's padding to fill time why (laughs) just there's so much content in the book to take from yeah it was mind-blowing to me that they literally took random nonsense and made it seem important to just end up in a dead end and waste my time with this show. Yeah, it's, it's a big waste <laughs> of time. Every single episode, I felt like my time had been wasted. And they just keep on creating conflicts. And the conflicts arise not from clever yeah. situations. They are oh they mostly arise from Jake or Bill, freaking Bill, we'll get to him, oh. being a big old idiot. B- idiots. Yeah. They're both yep. big idiots and they cause so many problems. Yeah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So what would you say? is a good log line because I gave my log line of the book versus the show. Do you have... Yeah, I think you did a really good job summarizing both. I would say the book is about, like you said, Jake Epping, but maybe more broadly, a story of moving forward and learning from the past but not getting stuck in it. Mm -hmm. Which, interestingly, is the theme of another book that we'll cover soon. Right. I won't tell you what it is, but that's something that's really interesting to me. And I think it's that thing that every adult probably struggles with. So it's a very universal theme. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was the dog. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know if I picked up on the mic, but I would say the show commits a cardinal crime of starting from the climax and working backward. Ooh, interesting. Right, and you talked a little bit about this when you talked about trying to write a thriller and the difference between writing a good and a poor thriller plot oh, and between our Gone on the Girl train and episode. Girl on the Train yeah. episode. Okay. Because when you have the climax in mind or the twist, it's really easy to poorly write things to make sure that your characters end up at that climax. Mm-hmm. And so in the show, that piece of fantasy or sci-fi is time travel. And so it feels like the show was so focused on that climax of preventing JFK from being assassinated <laughs> that it took that, that incredible character of Jake Epping from the book and made him, instead of very human, it made him very unrealistic with the added layer of time travel. And so in that way, there was nothing to draw the audience in. There's just nothing to relate to. To me, it was more about filling time and being entertaining until the end of an episode. Right. You know? It, 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 you, you can clearly see a situation of the writers of the show in the writer's room being like, okay, we have, mm-hmm. we know the beginning of the episode, we know the exactly. ending of this episode. Exactly. How, how much conflict can we throw in this to make it? And I think they just misunderstand that just because things are happening, just because Jake is in danger, does not mean it's engaging television. No. There has to be a reason behind the things he does. We have to like Jake, or maybe as a sidekick in the show, which he doesn't have in the book, Bill Turcotte, who's much younger in the show. Bill Turcotte shows up briefly in the book, who tries to kill Frank Dunning. Right. Again, going back to the book, so he knows that Frank Dunning killed his sister after he got her pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so a way of showing that the past was pushing back was that he showed up right before Jake is trying to stop Frank from killing his family. And he decides that he wants to kill Frank because he's murdered his sister, which is a really compelling conflict and a, and a really interesting way of showing that the past pushes back in ways that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. A complete curveball. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off, but I just wanted to give a little bit of context to Bill Turkett's character in the book. Right. Well, in the show, they're both just such idiots that it's really hard to like them and they're they're your main characters like how can you have a show where it's just not funny well and you you know we we really talked about how the first third of the novel is very slow but it's all about building jake into the kind of person that can do the job correctly because he already has a very genuine heart but al also recognizes that he might be a perfect person to finish this mission because he can listen and learn from what Al has already learned. And it was honestly so disrespectful, such a slap in the face to readers who have really grown to love Jake's character to turn him into this person who is rude and disrespectful to Al Mm -hmm. and doesn't listen to a goddamn thing that Al has told him. Even before he's gone back in time, you can tell that he's an unsatisfied teacher. He doesn't have the relationship with Al that he had in the book. You know, he's sort of Al's only hope 
because he's sort of in the diner at the right time when Al comes back from 1963 with cancer and he's already dying. You know, it's almost like a right place at the right time plot line, which if you've listened to this podcast, obviously both Danny and I think that that's a very cheap way of pushing your storyline forward. Right. And the book is structured so the first third, like we said, is very uneventful and methodical and patient where it's setting up the rules of time travel and portal and of life in uh, the late 50s, early 60s. But then at the end of the first third, there's that explosion of violence and action with him confronting Frank Dunning and Mm -hmm. of him almost saving everyone. I mean, he unfortunately still dies and then we have the first reset Mm -hmm. for him to see the results of his interference with Frank of him saving most of the family and and the first time he goes back he realizes that even though he saves Harry as a kid then that means Harry grows up to go to the Vietnam War and then dies in the war so Mm -hmm. instead of being a disabled man all his life he dies young in the war Mm -hmm. and so then we get the first reset so Jake has gone back once and he realizes that, yes, what I do in the past does affect the future. Mm-hmm. And then we get our first reset. So no reset in the show, which right. is he the just first jumps big, right in. goes right into it. And once we realize that we're not having that first reset, which again is really vital to him understanding the past. Right. And, uh, you know, when you have a book about slow burns and you decide, all right, we're going to have eight episodes over eight hours of content, that to me would be something of a gift. You know, you go back once, you test it, you come back, and that could be episode one. I think the first episode was over an hour. Yeah, and we were expecting him to go back in the first, but he doesn't even get to the uh, Dunning's house until the second episode. So we're like, okay, he's already two episodes in. We don't think a reset's happening, but his reset is such a big part of the book. But as I was talking about the structure, so the end of the first act of the book, you get this huge explosion of action and that buildup is worth it. All that slow yeah. buildup is worth it because it's akin to, I just watched the movie Aliens and a lot of people say that that movie is wall-to-wall action, really action-packed. And sure, there is a lot of action in there, but I think people forget that most of the action in that movie isn't until the last 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. There's a whole explosion. That's when all the aliens come. And really mm-hmm. the first, the 90 minutes is set up of this planet of them realizing something has gone wrong, mm-hmm. of Ripley meeting Newt, mm-hmm. and of them developing their relationship. So, oh, it's almost like the writers could learn from that story structure of you need buildup in order yeah. for there to be conflict. In the book, after this big explosion of action, Jake learns from this and then he goes back again. And then there's that big portion of the book, which is of him and Jody. Mm-hmm. And again, him and Jody, the reason why he loves that town so much and falls in love with Sadie is because there is no, he doesn't run into conflict there. Everything right. is hunky dory. Right. And then the end of that portion of the book is when he confronts Sadie's ex, Johnny Johnny Clayton. Clayton. And then there's that big explosion of violence. Mm -hmm. And then there's another lull in the book until the final confrontation on 11-22-63. So that's how the book flows, where there's... And this 
is, again, sorry to cut you off, over years of time. He lands in 1958 and goes all the way to 1963. So there are years covered. Which they changed it in the show to him arriving in 1960, which right. that that's understandable. I mean, right. you can't show with actors, you can't show that progression of time without heavy makeup with everyone. So it, it, right, it makes sense. Right, that's acceptable. But I'm just explaining how slow that process is and how much time he can sort of settle in the past. Mm-hmm. So that's the pace of the book where there's only really three main parts of the book where stuff happens. But in the back of your mind, you always know that 11-22-63, that date is approaching. So you're always on edge, even mm-hmm. in these lulls. Yeah. But what the show constructs is that every episode is its own mess of problems. Explosion. And I know this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I think the show would have been much more exciting if you had a couple episodes where they just took a break once in a while and, where, and where everything was fine and there was no conflict. I think <laughs> by having no conflict in some episodes, Episodes. I mean, there's plenty. There's eight hour-long episodes. Yeah. So you've got time. By just constructing these weird-ass plot lines that were not in the book, it's just wasted time. Yeah. I, I want to give a really good example of this. And I was so angry because it literally meant nothing. It, it's not explained a lot in the book, but Jake was very sad when his father died. His father died while he was en route to saying goodbye to him because his father, I think it had a heart attack or something. He was in the hospital. So he felt like he he never had gotten the chance to say goodbye. But for some reason in the show, they decided to make it this big deal to the point that he goes sort of unprompted to a payphone and decides to give his father a call. Which even if he could talk to him, the butterfly effect of that, of talking to your dad in the past. Right. Like, like what would you say? I think the only unsettled feeling that Jake had was the fact that he didn't get to say goodbye. But, you know, why why would you call? It, it didn't make sense. And, and his dad would have been a child two in the 60s. It it just didn't make sense. But anyway, he rings his dad. And while he's waiting for his father to pick up, this car starts barreling toward the payphone. And then his dad picks up and says, you know, hello or something, just in time for Jake to jump out of the phone booth and the car smashes into the payphone and very violently ejects this female driver, which is where we get our first hint that the past is going to be a lot more violent in the show. Mm -hmm. Because as she's bleeding out on the sidewalk... She says something like, you're not supposed to be here. Yeah, which this is the biggest oh change where God. in the book, the past cannot possess people and no. have them talk to Jake. Where that's right. that's the first change. And it just doesn't really ring true as something that could happen because in the book, it makes more sense where all the stuff can be explained away by, oh, weather or like a power line is down or, or, or a car or rolls someone down. crashes a car. Like in the very end, when they're trying to get to the book depository, the bus crash happens in front of them or someone you know t-bones their car but this is a person who is sent to crash into the phone booth to tell him you're not supposed to be here yeah so if the past can do that now then why doesn't the past just possess him. <laughs> someone yeah possess someone with a gun yeah and have that man kill jake like it's just when you introduce that into the show it's like okay then 
you can't introduce a rule and then yeah. only use it occasionally. That's the first of many, but that's only in the first episode. So right. the specific instance I want to bring up is uh, episode two, when he arrives in Kentucky to confront the Dunnings. So in the book, the Dunnings lived in Maine, right. in Derry, Maine. Which is fun because... Right. Yeah, where we talked about that. But they chose to put it in Kentucky because the showrunner, uh, Bridget Carpenter, said they just wanted to, to have a, chain, a change of scenery and too much of it was in Maine. And so they had Maine, Dallas, and they wanted to have a central location. So, so all of episode two takes place in Kentucky. It's the episode where Jake does recon on Frank Dunning and mm-hmm. eventually tries to, to stop him from killing his family. Now, in the book, Jake is like a secret agent, like you should be. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't draw attention to himself. Oh my God, he scopes yeah. out. He uses his uh, intellect and wit to get info from other people in the town as to where Frank works, where he goes to eat, to drink, what he does. So, And Jake <laughs> investigates so he can get the drop on Frank when the night eventually comes, Halloween night. And sorry, if I could add a little more to that motivation, the reason he doesn't put himself in in Frank's way is because Al warned him that if you know the place and time of something that's going to happen, you don't want to lose control of the situation by accidentally throwing the person off. Mm-hmm. You completely lose that advantage. So, sorry, I just wanted to add that little right. layer. Again, well, th- that ties in nicely because, so in the show, <laughs> Jake knows that Frank is a killer. Like the past has happened. So he knows that Frank is a murderer. But in the show, and I'm the whole episode two is just a string of dumb choices by Jake. And I apologize if this gets long winded, but I'm just going to go down the list. So right away, he goes into a bar and he's just like, any of you know Frank Dunning? (laughs) Frank Dunning. Hi, I'm I'm George. And where's Frank Dunning? He goes, again, you are doing recon on a confirmed murderer and you just go around saying hey where can i find frank do you know frank yeah i'm not from here i'm clearly suspicious anyone know frank (laughs) (laughs) and what happens is exactly what you expect so frank comes after like all the people all the men of the town get off work and go to this bar Mm -hmm. and the bartender who we later come to learn is bill turcott our our sidekick for five episodes of the show he tells frank hey that guy's asking about you so (laughs) where the book he never even confronted frank he immediately draws attention to himself and frank's like hey how do i know you how do i know you you looking for me immediately gets suspicious and i should say josh dumel who is a north dakota native yes (laughs) i would say he's not he's a very underrated actor because he's not in a lot of i should say prestige projects like he's in the transformers movies a lot of rom-com but when he has these little juicy roles he kills it and i feel like he's one of those actors who looks like a model and it's hard to take him seriously sometimes Mm -hmm. but if you find the right role like frank dunning this like big like he's six four he's really imposing and he beefed up for this little role when you find the right role he's actually great i really agree and i just want to say my own piece about this you can feel the tension and the anger beneath his performance and i'll say the only time he really gets angry is when he's sort of showing his bravado Mm -hmm. but even when he's smiling and even sort of trying to get chummy with 
Jake Epping, who, of course, he changes his name when he goes back. I don't know if we mentioned that, but he his name is George when he goes back in time. He is very calculating, and you can really feel the anger that has built in this character. I think he did do a really good job. Of, of all the actors, I think he was really true to the kind of person that Frank was in the book. Right. And he ha- you can tell that he's an alcoholic. He has made just choices and hurt people in the past. And he has this anger bubbling deep down with- within him. But he-, he knows there's a beast in there that he can't control. And I think he gets angrier just because he can't control his own anger. It's kind of like a snake eating its own tail type of situation. Where, oh, yeah. Which, of course, is on the yellow yeah, card. Right. But And I think he's also angry because he thinks he's bigger than this town. Mm-hmm. But he can't seem to escape it. Right. And he's, he's tied to it because of his kids. Right. And in, in the novel, it's a little more fleshed out. But anyway. Right. So then after drawing attention to himself in this bar, like an idiot, Frank comes up to him. And he's like, what? Why don't you have a beer with me? Clearly trying to pick his brain. And then Jake, for some reason, decides to get drunk yeah. with Frank. Like, what? Again, I can't stress this enough. Frank is a murderer of children. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't done it yet in this time period, but you know that he will murder yep. his own family. So Jake, he gets drunk with Frank and Frank purposefully doesn't get too drunk just so he can take advantage of Jake and uh, interrogate him. So yep. then Jake decides to get into the car with Frank and his buddies who clearly are these insane cronies who, these white men who yeah. who are clearly bad news. Then they drive to a th- the slaughterhouse at 2 a.m. How could he think that was a good idea to get in the car with this man? And I... then of course they have this big show and dance where Frank demands Demands that he killed this cow with a baseball bat so just so he can prove that he's like what was the whole point I, of that I, he was trying to prove that jake had balls or something yeah or he was just trying to intimidate him because he was trying to show him what a macho guy what a big guy in the community he was you know and the scene is played off to be so tense because oh like look like frank's either gonna make jake kill the cow and if jake doesn't kill the cow then they're gonna kill him or something like that and it's just like jake maybe you wouldn't be in this situation (sighs) if you just decided not to shout where's frank wherever you went maybe you've kept a low profile but the the stupid stuff doesn't stop there. Yeah. His next plan is to try to get the family away from Frank by saying that they won this prize, that they're going to this festival, and right. he just shows up at the door and introduces himself again. This is his real name. Frank has already seen him. He knows who he is. Right. And he has this whole dumb plan about, oh, yeah, you got to go to this festival at this time. And he gives them a flyer. And, of course, Frank sees this flyer later yeah. on. And then it's just like, stay away from my family and almost kills Jake again. But the thing is that's not compelling conflict because why didn't he just do what he did in in the book or just you know stay out there and find the right time to confront him now of course his confrontation with bill turcott happens and jake almost within seconds of being confronted by bill turcott admits that he's from the future you should have seen the anger coursing through me when this happened so jake admits that he's from the future yeah why would bill so uh, something to talk about in the book is that even if you reveal to someone that you are from the future they're not going to believe it because it's such a crazy thing so when he's (sighs) bantering on with bill before he confronts frank what reason would he have to say that he's from the future and that he knows he he'd kill his family but 
I was trying to figure out, okay, so is Jake trying to recruit someone to help him, right? Which of course doesn't go along with the book, but I was like, maybe he doesn't believe that he can do it by himself. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's telling Bill. But then as the audience can immediately foresee, Bill starts messing things up. And eventually, episodes later, Jake gets him committed to an insane asylum because he realizes now that Bill is an obstacle to getting to JFK because the past is now manipulating Billy. And what does Bill do? He jumps out of a window and kills himself. And from there we think, oh, okay, (sighs) so there's gonna be some payoff from that, because clearly him just dying out of nowhere, that, that's not going to be the end of Bill. But but guess it what? Is. It's it literally is. is. And so the entire four episodes or five episodes that he's in five, literally yeah. had no consequence well, to the storyline. Here, I'll get I'll get to his character. So I, I wasn't done with Sorry. season two. No, that's I fine. I keep cutting you off because I'm so angry. <laughs> so <laughs> after they kill Frank... And Jake has already said that he's from the future. Then Jake starts driving back to, you think, Maine to try to start all over again. Mm -hmm. And you think you're going to get that first reset. But Bill follows him and Jake gets out of the car but leaves his car door open. And then Bill, who has followed him, which, how did he follow him? You never see a car in in the other shots. But Bill had followed him. Okay. And then he goes into the car and just conveniently finds the newspaper clipping that says JFK assassinated. And Bill's like, what's this? And again, that's kind of that backwards writing where they wanted to have a sidekick and they reverse engineered by having Jake admit he's from the future and having Bill follow him and finding this uh, incriminating piece of evidence that he's from the future. And it's like, okay, you can kind of see what they're doing now. Bill is now tagging along with Jake. And movies and shows do this where they have a new character, like a newbie, a rookie mm-hmm. who comes on. So the veterans or you know the experienced characters can explain what's going on to the audience. So the veterans or the characters who've been around a while can explain stuff to the rookie, basically explaining stuff directly to the audience. The best example of this I can give is Inception, Ellen Mm -hmm. Page's character. comes in. Ariadne is her character's name. And people forget that Inception is like 70% exposition. It's Mm -hmm. 70% just Leonardo DiCaprio or Joseph Gordon-Levitt explaining to Ellen Page, who's along for the ride, explaining what's happening in the dream. The whole, the rules of dream within a dream. And Mm -hmm. and through her character, it it doesn't feel cheap because it makes sense. She's new. She doesn't know all this stuff. Now, instead of having a narration which the book has, you read Jake's thoughts, they explain what Jake's going through with this new character. But here's the thing. The whole point of Jake's journey in the book is that he is an outsider. He truly has no one else Mm -hmm. to confide in. He is a man outside of time. He can't have a partner because it it just wouldn't make sense. It would break time. Mm -hmm. This needs to be done alone. And that's where a big conflict happens with Sadie is because, oh, what happens now where I meet someone who I love, who I genuinely want to be with for the rest of my life, but what happens if she figures out I'm from the future? And she eventually does. does. And that's a whole thing. But in the show, it's just like, oh, okay, Bill, you're along for the ride. Nothing weird. I'm from the the future. You understand? Like, let's work together. Be buddy-buddy. And 
the narr I, I don't understand why they didn't just go the route of him having the narration was I, I, yeah. I don't know what they were thinking and um we just watched another movie which is an adaptation of a book which will cover soon where mm -hmm. it is mostly narration but it works because you're inside of the mind of the character and you enjoy this character so right. I, by adding bill as a side character you completely remove that whole element of jake truly being on his own being on an island and having yeah. nothing to turn to in a way it takes away a lot of conflict having yeah. s this support system well i shouldn't say support <laughs> system because from the minute <laughs> Bill shows up. He is nothing, nothing but a pain in the ass. Literally so frustrating. And I like this actor. Yeah, the actor is George McKay, who is the lead right. in uh, 1917. I loved him in 1917. Yeah, he should have been nominated for that. But in this TV show, the character is so dumb. Even when they try to write a backstory for him, I don't give a shit. It's sad. In the book, we meet Bill Turkett as an older man, sort of maybe middle-aged or maybe yeah. 60 years old. And he has lived with the knowledge that Frank murdered his sister and his nephew mm -hmm. for decades. Yeah. And the reason he shows up the night that Jake does to stop Frank from murdering his family is plausible just because you know that the past is going to throw things in mm -hmm. to stop Jake from changing the past. Right. But because Bill is older, he has a heart attack, mm -hmm. which prevents Jake from completing his mission the first time because Jake makes the decision to try to save Bill's life because he's a sympathetic character. Right. Now, with Bill being this young idiot yeah that blackmails jake into telling him yeah right <laughs> that he's from the future and then doesn't believe him basically he's like oh i'll just follow you to texas but then not help you and get annoyed every time you ask me to do something and then of course when they <sighs> move in next to uh marina and oswald and then uh, uh bill has that loving long look when he first sees marina and then she looks uh, at him oh, yeah and it's you're like, just like come it's on it's like are we really gonna do this are we really gonna have this this love affair between it's just so it's... such lazy writing oh dumb God. writing but i also really enjoy george McKay as an actor. I've seen him in some other stuff. He's fantastic, but I think this performance isn't great because he's doing a Kentucky accent. Yeah. And the thing about the Kentucky accent compared to, say, other Southern accents is that if you don't nail it, it's very easy to sound like Foghorn Leghorn. Like, mm. I say, I say, because the Kentucky accent is very, like, I can't do it, but it's very pronounced. But something like the Georgia accent, which Sadie has, is softer mm -hmm. and going like that. But Kentucky is like, Kentucky, like, I'm Bill. <laughs> fuck you, fuck your mission, and fuck JF. Kite. That's what he says. Yeah. He, he keeps on saying fuck oh. JF Kite. Oh and he, God, say, he yeah. says K like Kite. And, Gosh, it gets so old. And too, that's the thing. Again, I'm, I'm sorry I can't do the Kentucky accent, but neither can George McKay <laughs> because it is just so intense. And not only is he not 
a Kentuckian, he's English. Right. Which... So he he not only has to overcome his natural <laughs> English accent, he has to try to affect a dialect of American English, which is very difficult. Right. It's... And in contrast, sorry, I want to go back to the woman who plays Carla Jean in No Country for Old Men, who's Scottish mm -hmm. and does a regional American dialect from Texas incredibly well. And yeah. then... Or like um, another an actress who I'm really enjoying her work. I've just discovered her, Jessie Buckley, who mm -hmm. we just watched yep. a movie where she plays someone from the Midwest mm -hmm. and she's from Ireland. This you know. podcast has turned into, <laughs> let's list all the actors we like. Okay. But I, I'm just, so we're not saying that people that aren't from America can't do American accents. We're just saying if you don't do it well, it ends up turning into a caricature and yeah. distracting. And that's what happens with this. You know what? I'm sorry. Another example in an incredible art house movie blow the man down mm -hmm. where there are two sisters and one of them is from england as well isn't she and the she does actress a Maine, yeah. yeah and she does a main accent right incredibly yeah. well yeah <laughs> i dropped my fog yeah <laughs> anyway so we're not saying that actors who aren't from america can't do incredibly good american dialects we're just saying that this one doesn't work and it ends up being distracting. And a just... big a big conflict of the show comes from Bill starts secretly dating Mar Marina. Yeah. <laughs> Freaking Marina. Like out of nowhere. Oswald. And of course, uh, Jake is seeing Sadie, but then Bill and Jake have a big falling out. And that's where, again, I'm starting to swear, but it's just so funny when, <laughs> when Bill's like, fuck you, fuck your mission, and fuck JFK. Why don't you go back to your girlfriend who you were allowed to have? Right. And then it's it's like, Bill, Jake isn't dating the wife of Oswald, yeah. who will who will kill the president. Yeah, it's like it's that. exactly like Frank. It's right. like, you know that Oswald is a murderer. Yeah. And you go ahead and start an affair with his wife, who he's already emotionally and physically abusive toward because he's a jealous person. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, after like four episodes of Bill being just the worst. I mean, every time he's on I, screen, yeah, it, it is impossible to watch it. After four episodes, beautiful. Jake is finally like, okay, I should probably get rid of this guy, not yeah. kill him. But then he just has him come to a hospital and he's already admitted him to the psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. But it's like, can you do that? Can you just go and say like, hey, my brother's crazy. And of course they're not real brothers, so he couldn't hand over any credentials. Right. And he's like, hey, my brother's crazy. And then of course Bill takes the bait and they just put him away. But I mean, even in 1963, can you do that? Just yeah. could you do that? It's, it's so unbelievable. And just... of course you think that's gonna go somewhere, right? With him eventually, Jake coming back in the second to last episode to get Bill out of there. Yeah. But no. Bill no. jumps out the window, kills himself, and then you think, okay, there's an episode left. Maybe he's going to go back in time and he'll apologize to Bill or make things right with Bill. Nope, Bill just is gone forever and it's like, okay, so really the only point of Bill was to have Jake explain stuff to him, yeah. but you made Bill just the worst character, even dumber than, than Jake was, but 
okay, but there's just no satisfying end to it, and you just move on, and yeah. it's it's the antithesis of satisfying. It, it's more, to say that it's unsatisfying doesn't do it justice. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you described it as Jake realizing that Bill is only going to hold him back. It's almost, it's more like the writers just realized, oh shit, we introduced a character that isn't going to do anything except give the audience exposition. Now we're done with him. Let's just throw him out a window. And, and going back to Inception, so what they did with Ellen Page character was her being the audience surrogate if you will having having leo explain it to mm-hmm. things her the whole movie the clever thing they do with her was since she has such a connection to leo since he has explained everything to her now she knows leo enough to help him in the third act overcome maul who yeah. was the big threat in Inception. And so they do that clever turnaround where the whole movie Ellen Page is is receiving information and then she finally uses that in the third act. Mm -hmm. Whereas Bill, all he's there is just a cipher for the audience for you to intake information and and create conflict out of his own uh, mistakes. And then he just leaves and it's just back to to Jake again and, and Sadie. But it's like, why couldn't the whole show just be Jake and Sadie? Yeah. Cut, cut two episodes out of this bad boy, make it a six episode <sighs> miniseries, maybe even five. Yeah. And have the whole thing be done because the final episode is honestly the closest to the book uh, out of all the episodes. I mean, right. episodes one through seven might as well be called a different thing because there's very little similarities other than character names. It's just, and it's just a shame because as you're talking, I'm just realizing it that it's literally the complete opposite of the book because whereas at a thousand and eighty pages, I wanted more. I mm-hmm. could have taken more storyline. But with about nine hours of content with this show, I want less. Yeah. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times Danny had to sit me down and say, okay, we're watching 112263. Gotta do it for the pod. It took us, I thought it might take us, you know, a week. It took us, what, almost three or four weeks yeah, almost because a full month to I just get could this. not do it. And, and you know, again, I I feel like I'm very fair. I find that if a director has a different path that they want to take a storyline, I'm really great with it. And if they get creative and they find something else to say, I'm really happy with it. And I'm not one of those people that always says the book is better than the movie. But they tried to lean too far into the book, but then not lean into the book. And and they just tried to go back and forth and it didn't work and I wanted less. I wanted so much less of the show. I just wish it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about a few characters that they changed fundamentally? Like I was thinking of Sadie and I was thinking of Mimi. How about you, how about you go with those characters and then I'll say a, a term that they changed for the... Oh, yeah. We should talk about the language yeah. a little bit. Okay. But you so, go with those characters, yeah. So I'm, I'll quickly skim over my incredibly disappointed opinion about the character of Mimi, played by Tanya Pinkins. So we already mentioned how they gutted Jake's time and Jody. Mm-hmm. And I think that took away from his character, but it also took away from the character of Mimi, who Jake meets when he gets the job at Jody High School. And she is this wonderful sort of student counselor who is in a relationship with the principal, is the guy? Deke Deke Simmons, yeah. But she lives for her students. And she's the one who introduces 
Jake to Sadie, and she's just this loving, giving, wonderful character. And in the show, so at first I was actually heartened because they decided to make her character a black woman, which introduced a little bit of the racial tension. Yeah, during that. During yeah. that period, which they talk a little bit about in the book, but is not, it's just not, there's no time in the show, I think, to really address that. Yeah. So they decided to introduce that element with Mimi's character in the show, but it was just disappointing. They made her a secretary. And even that was disappointing because it's like she had nothing to do. To I, mean, do. I mean, it's a commentary on how uh, people of color couldn't get pretty high profile jobs during during that time. But as you're saying, they don't really do anything right. with that message. So right. by making her a secretary, even though the intentions are good to show the racism and the prejudice that African-American people had to deal with during that time, in doing so, that takes away a lot of agency from her character, a lot of, you know, meaning. Right. And, and yeah, and I, I felt like there was just a little, there was a hint of that white savior narrative where right. she goes to try to get gas at a gas station and the white owner isn't giving her gas. And he says like, oh, you have to go get it, you know, in, on your side of town or something. And then Jake rolls up in his car and he's like, oh, hey, you can't treat Mimi like that. And he like, you know, buys her gas and then like walks her away and gives her a ride home. Yeah. And it's like, come on, like this character has no agency. You know, she has no personality. Like she's just always like being talked down to by the other teachers. And Jake is always the one to say like, don't treat Miss Mimi like that. Or another example is how they sort of downplay her relationship with Deke. You know, like you would, you would think that Deke would have made her a bigger deal in his life, but they don't get married in the show. They just sort of hide their relationship. And so in that way, she's just a completely muted character. You know, it's, it's similar to Mansfield Park where they bring up the slavery. And of course saying racism is bad is a great message, but you can't just bring that up and then drop it. Right. Well, and then- You need so, to deal with it. Right. And so they bring, so she's in what? Two or three episodes. And they bring up the fact that she's sick. But then she dies. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, sort of exactly what you're saying. It's like she's there and they say, oh, racism is real and Jim Crow happened and it was bad. And then let's move on to follow these entirely white characters and their narrative. Mm -hmm. And Jake is a good person because he defended her. And that's that's it. <laughs> like, right. yeah. So it's that's pretty disappointing. And now... I'm going to talk a little bit about Sadie. I was really looking forward to her character being a little more active and her character having a little more agency during this show because it was a female showrunner. And I felt like maybe, you know, I talked about this in the first episode, but maybe Stephen King just wasn't able to write a woman as well. Now, <laughs> Sadie in this show, I'm sorry, the woman who plays her, Sarah Gaden, Gadden? Yeah, uh, Gadden. Sarah yeah. Gadden. She does a good accent. <laughs> That's about all I like about her. She's exactly the same as she is in the book. Very passive. She just sort of bumbles around as this uninteresting nothing to me in the whole show. And the thing that absolutely drove me crazy was in the book, she is physically disfigured by Johnny's attack on her. When he slices her face open, 
he cuts through skin, muscle, and nerve. Yeah, you can see the bone is what he's saying. Yeah. To the cheekbone yeah. when he attacks her. And that really raises the stakes of Jake being able to quote unquote overcome this disfigurement and her disability because she can't even speak very well mm-hmm. after that attack. And he says, I see who you are. And he really has to fight her saying, no, I'm ugly. So you know, you can't be with me anymore. Mm-hmm. He really has to fight that. And he says, no, I'm here for you. I see who you are. I love you as a person and your personality and all these things. <laughs> now, this is almost laughable in the show. Oh, of course, because you can't cut up a pretty face, I guess. <laughs> she gets cut along the side of her ear. The, like the hairline. Like the so hair that you can just yeah, cover it with basically, hair. Right. Basically from her, the middle of her forehead to her chin in a crescent shape, you know, that that basically follows her hairline. You you can't see. She doesn't, her nerves don't get cut, but she, she, there's not even really any plastic surgery that she needs to have that fixed. She gets a few stitches. You can't see it. This, this and it's is a, just, yeah, it, it's so, it's so disappointing. Something. The stakes to that fight are just, I'm sorry. It's just. This is a bizarre trope that keeps on popping up in movies, which is that women having disfigurements that they're so ashamed of, but when you see them, it's like they look fine. This yeah, happened in the uh, the Ready Player One movie, where a big part of that is one of the characters, she has a big uh, red mark, like a birthmark around her eye, and she doesn't go out because she's just like, oh, everyone's going to call me ugly. But it's like, really? You look like a model. Like, how oh, are you? Oh, but also, if a man has a scar, it's sexy, and it's mm. really attractive, and it shows that they're, they have grit. Like, wow. Hashtag double standard. You can... So angry. Right. It is a double standard, and you can... Look, it's just... It's bizarre that this this keeps on happening in in movies where (sighs) females will get... Have these big injuries that they're ashamed of, but they look fine. Unbelievable. Um, But the biggest change of all, and we need to wrap up soon, but I wanted to get to this because I knew that it it drove you crazy. So something they keep on saying over and over in the book is that the past is obdurate. They used to remember that term, obdurate. Mm -hmm. Obdurate, we said this in the last episode, but you come to have a good relationship with that word because it always puts puts into perspective what's going on with the past. Like, obdurate Mm -hmm. is pushing back, but in a stubborn way. Webster's Dictionary defines obdurate as... As as pushing back (laughs) in a stubborn way, and it's a very intellectual way to describe what's going on with Jake. And it it becomes, this is cringy to say, but the word obdurate becomes such a big symbol, a motif, a character in of itself, if you will. Right. Because they keep on saying it. The book should have been Called titled, the past is obdurate. Yeah, instead of 112263, it should have been the past is obdurate or obdurate. Right. But they never say that word once in the show. And I was wondering why. Because, and, of course, yeah. there was an interview with the showrunner, Jennifer Carpenter, because she actually got an onslaught of questions from fans, like, asking her, why didn't anyone ever say obdurate? Yeah, and, that's fair. And, and, <laughs> that's my number one question. And I, I know it sounds silly for someone who hasn't read the book, but it actually is a big deal. You come to learn about it. And in an interview with Deadline, the interviewer said, asks her straight up why she didn't put the word obdurate in the show. And That's fair. They both, they both laugh, but then she goes on to explain that 
there are certain lines that can't translate uh, to drama on television, which she she what? has a point. Well, she has a point there where, say, take like Law and Order, for example. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of that that show is fun because you get, uh, you know, inside look into the lives of detectives, like very methodical, slow moving. You see the crime scene, you see all the stuff Mm -hmm. and they talk in seemingly technical language. So it seems like you are actually a detective yourself, you know, talking with them. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that that language is skewed toward general audiences. It's dumbed down, if you will. Now, I'm gen- more of a Bones fan, but yeah, I get it. Exactly. Th- that applies to Bones. That's an even better example where, of course, the actual Bones analyzers, whatever their job is titled, of course... <laughs> the, uh, technically, they're called squints, but continue. Uh, sure, the, the squids. They... Squints. <laughs> they're squints because they wear glasses and they squint all the time. Right. That's why they're called that Danny Ketch. but but basically the language in those shows are tweaked so general audiences can understand them yeah and jennifer carpenter is making the same argument in this interview for the word obdurate saying it won't translate and and here's the thing i'll Mm -hmm. admit i didn't know what the word obdurate meant before i read the book but after i read the word I went on Google and looked it up, and then I knew it for the rest of the book. Well, you were going to learn it by the end of the book, right? Because it said so often. All they, yeah, all they had to do in the show was to have someone say, oh, to have, like, Al say, like, the past is obdurate. It, you know, it pushes back. It's stubborn. They, they All they needed to have was just someone explain the word, and, you know, th- that's not... That's not uncommon for someone to explain a word they just said. Well, and, you know, going back to the first third of the book, it Al does that. Yeah. He describes, he shows Jake, these are the things, these are my experiences with the past being obdurate. And through context clues, we can understand what obdurate means. Yes. <laughs> but, We're not stupid. That is well, one the, of my absolute pet peeves of treating the audience like fucking idiots. Yeah, and that's the thing, that... That's I encourage you all to to read this interview with Jennifer Carpenter on Deadline, where she basically sa- says the audience we're going to be too stupid to know the word obdurate. Wow! All Miss, right, little Miss Jennifer, um, do you want to talk thoughts. about the Yellow Card Man at all, or no? Um, here's what I'll say about the Yellow Card Man. In the book, he was a gatekeeper of mm-hmm. the portal. In the show, he was a representation of the past, mm-hmm. pushing back. But the thing is, is that it was unnecessary because we already knew when the past was showing back. So whenever he would show up, it's like, okay, what are what are the rules with him? Is he a real person? Is he the representation of the past? Like what like what are the rules? And they never explain it. Right. He can apparently teleport. Yeah. He pops up and then disappears, and you don't know if that was real or if it was just Jake hallucinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do like the actor, Kevin J. O'Connor, who shows up, who has mm-hmm. a small part in There Will Be Blood. He plays mm-hmm. Henry, yep. uh, Daniel's supposed brother. Mm-hmm. He's great in that. Uh, and great in this, too. Yep. Perfectly cast, but the character itself is just not uh, well-defined. I'll say this about the Yellow Card Man. He's a very tragic character in the book. And like Danny said, he's a gatekeeper, and he's the only person in 1958 that knows that Jake is not supposed to be there. Right. And I always thought actually that he was going to come back and 
intercept some action or something, yeah. but he never does. But it's okay. He he actually ends up committing suicide. And again, it's tragic because he can he can sort of see the strings breaking apart of the universe well, and it becomes too much for one person to accommodate yeah because in the book the first yellow card man it commits suicide and then he has another yellow card man explain everything uh, because strings. he becomes the red card man yeah. the green card man all these things in the show I, I kind of already commented on it but he's basically just there because he's in the book yeah and he's uh humanoid representation of the past being obdurate yeah now <laughs> does it make more sense to just say the past is obdurate or does it make more sense to throw a character in there that does literally nothing and is really unclear about his rules and motivations hmm. and like you know what something, i mean like why that just it's just more confusing something and really tells me you're not talking directly to me you're talking to a certain i don't <laughs> yeah. know jennifer carpenter um yeah. is Come she at me I, i'm i'm sorry to go so hard she on you jen but you you really messed book. up a great book uh you have some other credits to your name i mean you you produced friday night lights uh so both the movie and the show so gotta give you credit there but yeah <sighs> Just missed it. Missed, Just swung and missed on this. So, yeah, the book, we can't recommend enough. Four <laughs> out of four stars. The show, please stay far away. I mean, if you... Yeah. Obviously, if you've made it to the end of this episode, which... Not a lot of people probably have since it's just been us rambling and ranting for a full two hours, but... But you know what? When there's not a structure to the show, how could we have structured our podcast? Amen. You tell me Amen. how we should have structured this. I'm not claiming that that I could be a producer myself, That, but I don't know. I, I just don't think it's that hard to really uh, adapt this book straightforward. And funny uh, enough, yeah. uh, Jonathan Demme, the the great director of Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia, he is since passed, but he was initially slated to uh, produce and direct this series. Wow! And he was initially wow. going wow, wow, wow. <laughs> initially going to be a movie, then a three part TV show, and then uh, for reasons unknown, he exited the project. <laughs> And that was kind of the death of the whole project there. And I think right after he exited the project, he passed. Uh, so RIP to a legend. Go watch some of his movies. Don't watch the show. Laura, yeah, zero out of four stars for the show for you. Yeah. A hundred percent zero. Yeah. Like negative then. A hundred. Like, yeah. Yeah. Negative a hundred percent. Or negative four stars. I'd be interested to talk to someone who watched this first and then went back and read yeah. the book. Right. Because I just, I don't know how this was supposed to appeal to anyone. Right. It doesn't seem like, even if you went in cold and watched this first, I don't know what you would get out of the show. If you like the show, then lose our numbers. <laughs> um, okay. Unfollow. Yeah, and the show was also <laughs> produced by J.J. Abrams, which, listen, Mission Impossible 3, I love that movie. It's actually one of my favorites, but after the rise of Skywalker <laughs> and this, he's on thin ice. Man, Poor guy. You know, he went He's to my high school ice. and he based a couple of the Star Wars characters apparently on some teachers that I had in high school. Haven't met him. Good luck to the man. Yeah, hopefully he didn't base any characters on Rose because he wasted that great character on the last movie. He sidelined her pretty hard. Oh, that's true. I was talking about Maz Kanata. Oh. She was she was actually based on my AP English teacher, Rose Gilbert, who taught at Pally High 
and I'm gonna triangulate where I'm from, uh, from like 1968 to 2014. Wow. She's just an old lady. Service. Anyway, <laughs> she's since passed now. Oh, well, but thank you. Yeah, still. she just, I don't know. I read that fun fact online one time and I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's favorite character, Maz Kanata. <laughs> um, yeah, JJ, you are on thin ice, buddy. Anyway, good luck to you, sir, but you have yet to blow me away. Well, Mission Impossible 3. Have I seen that? Yeah. Oh, you lo- you saw all of the Mission Impossible movies. All of them? I showed you all of them. All of them? Yes. Uh, no. I started with I three, think... but you love three. And it's great. can't wait for number seven. It's t- uh, uh, Mission Impossible 3 is tied with Fallout for my favorite. Rogue Nation is a quick second. Okay, <laughs> this is not the Mission Impossible <laughs> podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you. The end of Series 2. We'll be back in two weeks with Silence of the Land. Right. Speaking of... <laughs> yeah. So thank you for listening again. Um, if you listen to all our podcasts, thank you. Please follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at film underscore is underscore lit underscore podcast and also we just want to give a shout out to at florence boulevard lfl yeah, 90201 yeah. because they posted about our podcast and apparently they're fans yeah and so, so thank you they're based in omaha yeah so th- thank you to those and yeah please rate and review if you like us follow me on letterboxd which is a uh, movie reviewing app my handle is at danny g reviews and we also have a facebook page mm-hmm. at film is lit podcast on facebook awesome Alrighty, we'll see you in two weeks this has been a pleasure not a pleasure watching the show but no you get what i'm saying <laughs> a pleasure shitting on it all right peace out Bye.